Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and, of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I hadn't originally intended to do a separate show about the Congressional Select Committee, the United States House Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party, to use its full official name. But after it televised its first hearing in primetime on Tuesday night, and after seeing so little forceful pushback against the hyperbole and the alarmism, I've changed my mind. So thankfully, my good friend Jude Blanchett, Freeman Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, was not only able to make time, but willing to share his thoughts. Jude is, of course, familiar to anyone who's listened to this show, as well as anyone who listens to his terrific podcast, Pekingology, on which he interviews up-and-coming China scholars and some established ones as well about their work. He makes it accessible, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a fantastic show on a really important set of topics. I think it's, it's important to make it accessible to people who are adjacent to but not ensconced in the ivory tower. And uh, I think that's what you do, right, Jude? Uh, I, I hope to. So, yeah, appreciate the kind words, Kaiser. So check that show out if you're not already listening to it. And Jude, man, thanks, thanks again for making time to join me on Seneca. Thank you, Kaiser. Appreciate the, appreciate the time and look forward to the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So let me, let me start with this. You know, We've talked before about how all this is starting to feel a little like 2002 in, in the run-up to the Iraq invasion. There's that drumbeat that I talked about with Mike Mazar. Uh, thank you, actually, for your introduction to him. Uh, but there is actually a much more recent year that this current climate reminds me of even more, and that's that's 2020, uh, when the Trump administration really pulled out all the stops and basically declared open season on China across all agencies and departments Um of the U.S. government. This time, though, it feels even maybe more serious, uh, but also less serious. Uh, that may be in part because this is happening under a presidential administration that is, you know, less unhinged than the former guy. But but um, it does feel to me like in these few years, the middle ground has shifted. The Overton window on, on China as the source of, you know, global evil and, and perfidy has somehow widened. Is it just a coincidence or are all these things cresting right now, things that were set in motion earlier, or do you think something is, is changing profoundly? Yeah, I don't know if I can take door D, which is all of the above, because uh, I, I I think there's a, as you say, there's a confluence of events. And I, and I certainly think things like Balloon Gate, COVID-19, um, the the visit to Taiwan by Speaker Pelosi, you've just had an accumulation of events which have, 
continued to strengthen a narrative about the relationship between U.S. and China as, as increasingly being, you know, Cold War-like, Cold War adjacent, or or, or something of that of that ilk. Um, and then I also think it's the fact that a number of events, such as the the controversy over the MBA and Daryl Morey, have made the China discussion really seep into democratic politics, small d democratic politics, right? Um, which has, uh, I think, made this dynamic more uh, complex, but also has put us on this path where we are now, where I think almost um, everyone at a national level seems to be framing this as a, um, you know, as a as a Cold War, or as, as Mike Gallagher said at the hearing the other day, an existential crisis. Yeah, let's talk about his use of that that phrase, existential. Is that just rhetoric, or do you think he honestly believes that the Chinese Communist Party is somehow a threat to the very continued existence of the United States? Well, one of the challenges, whether he actually believes it or it's rhetoric, it, it has an effect, right? Yeah, to have the yeah. initial hearing of this much vaunted and influential select committee on China start out with the chairman framing this as a, you know, as, as an existential struggle. And just to read the whole quote, he says, this is this is not a polite tennis match. Right. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. And the most fundamental freedoms are at stake. It doesn't the stakes don't get higher than that. And again, even if this is a a cynical political ploy or if he deeply believes it, I I think this is a a profoundly important debate to be having rather than just something which is asserted and everyone nods their head at, which seemed to be the case at the hearing the other night. Yeah, I mean, that's what really worries me. And when I talk about the, the center having shifted, people seem to accept this pretty extreme framing of it now. I I can't help but feel like our whole national psychology in all its current manifestations, um, you know, all the pathologies are are quite clearly on display with this. I mean, this is for sure, you know, my sense with Balloon Gate, obviously, the whole balloon episode. The select committee, though, really kind of drove it home. I mean, honestly, my main emotion isn't so much outrage or sadness as it is embarrassment, just like this yeah. deep abiding yep. embarrassment. I see you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah I, and I just to say, when I tuned into the hearing the other night, I have to say I had um, no real built in expectations. If you look at, you know, there's many serious people on, on the committee. Again, it's a bipartisan committee. You've got people like Ro Khanna, you've got Andy Kim, and I'll even say, you know, Mike Gallagher, sort of serious people with serious credentials. And there is indeed a very important set of, of challenges that confront us as we think about the bilateral relationship with China. So I have no inherent problem with having a select committee focusing on how do we engage in a form of strategic competition that's smart and redounds to U.S. You know, interests and strengthens the country. But what I saw was just an, an absolute and total embarrassment where within about five minutes, I think I just looked at my wife and we just both put our heads into our, our hands yeah. because I, I came away with, if you were an alien and you tuned into this, you would think the United States is a pathetic, weak, scared nation, which is being beset by an omnicompetent, omnipresent you know, enemy <laughs> of, you know, of, of just galactic proportions in terms of its capabilities and I just I think that was both analytically, it's such an untrue framing of the problem. It's such a vast underestimation of the strength of, of the United States and such an overestimation of China. And I guess more more importantly, and you said this in your in- introduction, this is a, a bilateral relationship and the challenges around it, which demand utmost seriousness and nuance and and comfort with complexity. And there was absolutely none of that in this. And so even just diagnostically, if we continue to follow the playbook outlined at that committee, it will lead to, I think, tragedy and devastation and extraordinary amounts of waste. So even from a get tough on China positioning, I just think this was an utter embarrassment. Yes, if that's how it lands with the aliens, just imagine how it lands in Beijing. I mean, this does not exactly make us look like the mature, confident superpower that we, you know, believe ourselves to be in our more sober moments. It's, it's, yeah, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to make too much of this, but I, I, I could imagine a world where Xi Jinping looks at this and is thinking, damn right, like, I've got the I've got the United States after decades of us being 
worried about infiltration and the soft power of the United States and worried about, you know, its global influence, you know, for, for the 80s and the 90s, it was China and the Communist Party who were weary of the United States. And, and I, Xi Jinping, am now, you know, I, I've now f- turned the tables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I've heard you describe this as a moral panic, and that's certainly what I would describe it as. There are all sorts of examples of moral panics in American history. I mean, we had the what was it, like satanic child abuse in the 80s, and you know the dirty lyrics and the backmasking in Led Zeppelin and Dungeons Black and Dragons. Dungeons remember and Dra- that? Yeah, that was absolutely. the thing we were going after in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Comic books in the 50s. Uh, it's just yeah, it's crazy. So what, Jude, what's a moral panic, and and why would you classify? the current American reaction to China as one. And maybe one more question. I mean, you know, what do you think is the best way to understand the kind of psychology that underlies this particular moral panic? I would consider this a moral panic um, in the sense that is the, the way that we're framing the problem and the solutions we're proposing are wildly disproportionate to the actual existing harm or challenge. The, the reason I think this is different than the Dungeons and Dragons moral panic is, you know, I don't think we could say that there is no challenges presented by the Communist Party of China. That, that to me at least, and not to get into debate with you, but I think, you know, to me it's clearly true that there are extraordinary challenges that the United States is confronted with. And there are elements and, and very important ones where I think we need to be thinking about how do we confront, compete with, um, with the Xi administration. Sure. That's just undoubtedly true. No, I couldn't um, agree more. But it is when we, when you, when you begin hyperventilating and and framing the problem not as a serious challenge to U.S. national competitiveness, um, U.S. power and influence, but as an existential threat to the entirety of the 21st century and every single value that we hold. Now the delta between the actual problem and the way you're framing it is such that um, you will begin uh, proposing solutions wildly disproportionate to the problem, where really, if you're framing this as an existential problem, then all bets are off, right? If you're saying this is an this this is actually live or die for the United States, well, then things like the rule of law, democratic process, um, suddenly need to go out the window because if we don't, you know, deal with this menace, then the entire country comes collapsing down. And so like we've seen in previous moral panics where you see witch hunts, you see innocent people slandered, you see the United States whip itself into a frenzy, but most importantly, or, or as importantly, come up with solutions that don't actually solve the problem because you're going after phantoms. Yeah. Um, that's what we're positioning ourselves for here. So yeah. this is, a, as I said you know, previously, I'll probably say it eight more times, these are profoundly serious challenges we're confronted with as we think about how do we compete with China? Where are there areas of Chinese power that we feel like we need to push back against? Those are really complex challenges that will require all of our, you know, all six cylinders firing. But so long as we're freaking out about Chinese purchases of agricultural land, right, and we're thinking about barring all Chinese citizens from being able to purchase land in the United States, that is a moral panic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of people frame this in terms of American domestic politics, and there are a couple of ways in which they do this. So I was just, you know, there was this Washington Post editorial board uh, uh, op-ed piece that, that said, you know, the select committee was off to a promising start. And it's starting to concern me how, you know, how this, this uncritical view is so often just sort of all about the appeal of bipartisanship. That's how they, they, they start, and that's how so many people do. I mean, are we just chasing the will-o'-wisp of bipartisanship? Can China lead to something substantively bipartisan, or is the GOP just kind of leading the Democratic Party down the path toward this kind of unfixable, implacably hostile relationship with China? The comment about bipartisanship is, to me, a sad reflection of just how broken we think our system is, where we're looking for bipartisanship qua bipartisanship. Right. The, the, the recipe is bipartisanship plus serious issue, uh, plus finding practical solution to that issue. And that's not, you know, looking at the committee, you're right. What we're doing is we're, we're, these are hosannas for bipartisanship. Missing is the next step though, which is bipartisanship for a moral panic. I want nothing to do with and is a sad indictment on our system. The other thing I should say in fairness though, is I think there were a few members um, on the committee who did try to raise some of the more important issues here. I think I think Andy Kim from New Jersey mm-hmm, deserves mm-hmm. some plaudits here 
because when with his um, his time and questioning, he did try to, I must admit, make a bit of a political statement by tying it to January 6th, although my, my feelings about January 6th are the same as his. But his point he was making is national unity and, and domestic resilience and strength are the foundation of, of any possible policy we would want towards China. So, you know, what do the what do the witnesses think of that? And I think that was a through line with a few of the Democratic members. Um, Christian Morthy, who is the who's the ranking member in the Democrat side, his opening statement made that same point. If I can just quickly reference it, you know, he said there's three metrics by which the success of this committee would be judged. Uh, are we protecting American values, our interests and interests? You know, are we as the committee finding ways to up our game in terms of workforce improvement, weaknesses in the U.S. economy, supply chains, and are we avoiding anti-Chinese or, or anti-Asian stereotyping? So he let off well, but then I just think the rest of the, the committee and, and, and most of the members violated all three of those rules by either ignoring them or, again, as we said, when you frame the Communist Party as this shadowy cabal that is everywhere and nowhere at once, that's underneath your bed, and that is capable of threatening the very foundations of the United States, you've got to imagine that anti-Asian and anti-Chinese racism is coming next. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's not not even in question for me, but let's 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 zero in on this use of the Communist Party. Uh, the name of the select committee itself is, is sort of a strange sort of asymmetry. The competition is said to be between the United States, a country, and the Chinese Communist Party. Does it strike you as odd that these two actors in competition are are not equivalents? You know, a party on the one hand and a whole nation on the other. What what is that supposed to be about, and what is it actually doing? I think two things. Here's what I think. Here's what they would say, which is we're trying to make it very clear that our beef is not with the the Chinese people or or, or the People's Republic of China. It's with the ruling Communist Party. That's what they would say they're doing. And the reason they would say they're doing that is precisely so that we're not broad brushing the Chinese people as malign actors, right? So that's their theory of the case. I think the other element that they know is we're, it's, we're still living in the 1950s and in a Cold War view of the world. And so anytime you mention communism, you know, that, that, that's going to help clarify the challenge for the American people and simplify it for them. Right. So the more you say Communist Party, Communist Party, it will trigger all of our muscle memory of the Cold War. And, and that'll, that'll help facilitate a speedy conversation that this is a strategic rivalry. That's what I think they're doing. Uh-huh. I, just th- I think they're too clever by half because I just don't think it works on any level. First of all, Imagine that Xi Jinping gave a menacing, snarling speech talking about an existential struggle with the United States and then said, don't worry, Americans, I'm not coming for you. I'm just coming for all of your government. (laughs) I'm not sure that would put us at ease that much, right? You know, and as a diagnostic point, I'm not sure people in the committee realize just how embedded the Communist Party is in China. It's 95 million people. It's roughly one out of every 14 people will be a Communist Party member. And guess what? They all have parents. They've got cousins. They've got siblings. So the amount of people who who are directly related, I don't have the data, but I think we could just extrapolate. We're thinking about something like a quarter of the country would probably a direct be a direct relative of a Communist Party member. And not so many siblings, Jude, right? Well, that's well nowadays, <laughs> Kaiser. Nowadays, yeah. um, you know. And if you've lived in China, you also know a lot of Communist Party members, and and virtually none of them are part of the apparatus of the party state system. Right. Right. So of the 95 million, again, I'd have to look up the data, but I think it's something like 10 to 14 million are, are formally a part of what we'd call the party state system. Right. The rest of them are hairdressers. I mean, I used to work at a very small firm in Washington, or excuse me, in Beijing. It's a lot of hairdressers. We, 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 well, you, you know, they're, they're, they're farmers. They're, right. you know, they're, they're, they work at white collar jobs. These are not people who are involved in in you know labor camps in Xinjiang, they're not devising ways to invade Taiwan. Um, you know they're not th- these. So I think there was just a in thinking you're saying oh it's just the Communist Party. You're still broad brushing an extraordinarily large part of the Chinese population, which has nothing to do with the problems that you've outlined. You're frustrated about. So the the other domestic piece of this is that you know you'll hear. Biden's tough on China posture is really about protecting his right flank and you know, his vulnerable right flank, which, you know, 
is susceptible to the allegation that he's soft on China. I, I wonder if that's really on their minds at all, and the Democrats who are participating in this, or if they too have just accepted this idea that China is our great adversary. I, I mean, without wanting to psychoanalyze anyone, um, I, and I don't want to make a partisan comment, I think you did see threads of what the Democratic position is in contradistinction to Republicans from some of the comments, which is uh, investments in domestic resiliency, capabilities, right. innovation. Right. I didn't hear really any of that from the Republican side, and I heard that from several of the Democratic members. And indeed, I think if we're thinking about the administration's policy, when they hold up their achievements, it's the CHIPS Act, it's closer relations with partners and allies. There, there are things to critique here, but I would say I do think the, the administration's U.S.-China policy is very different from what you would see if you saw Republicans in office and is very is much more focused on domestic innovation investments in strengthening allies and partnerships. So I, I'm not sure I entirely see, you know, they're all the same. That being said, it does feel to me in Congress, at least, that it's Democrats following Republicans to the right on the China issue. Mm-hmm. And there was a good mm-hmm. political article the other day on why haven't Democrats found their voice on China that right. I thought I was, that. I thought it put its finger on a few points of there's not enough areas where the Democrats have clearly demarcated how they have a distinct approach to China that yes, recognizes the threats or challenges that Beijing poses to the United States and the interests of us and our allies, but also is a uniquely democratic spin on what we do about it that is combining in a more coherent and coherently articulated manner, domestic investments, what we do about partners, partnerships and alliances. And and what was missing from all of the select committee's discussion the other day was, if you wanna have global influence, you need to solve global challenges, right? And, and when you talk to third countries, if you talk to you know, countries in Southeast Asia, Central Asia, Latin America, Africa, you know, what they're looking for for U.S. leadership is we have practical functional challenges around economic development, around climate change, right, around public health that we're crying out for global solutions to. And there's very few powers in a position to do that. That was more or less absent from the discussion. I, I don't know how you could have a discussion on competing with China in a global arena where you're not articulating a strong strategy about leading on solutions to shared global challenges. So again, that's one I would imagine Democrats in in Congress could do a better job of owning because I think they will will have a better, that will be more organic to their own view of what what government can do than, than to many of the Republicans. But so far you've heard You've heard some platitudes about that, but if we're going by the, the committee and what we heard from some of the Democrats, it wasn't as present and center as I would hope it could be. Sure. I mean, just so that we don't paint too rosy a picture of the Democratic policy or the Biden administration's policy toward China, there is an awful lot of this sort of, uh, you know, Tanya Harding to, to China's Nancy Kerrigan as well. Uh, there's a lot of the kneecapping of, of- Trying to figure out how that analogy plays out. Who- who's, who? Well, we're we're the U.S. is Tanya Harding here, and we're kneecapping, you know. <laughs> well, this is a different discussion because I think there, there's I'm a talking lot of about, things- I'm talking about October seventh, and I'm talking about you know just this this sort of uh, you know using these alliances and partnerships to to help in this. I mean, much in the same way that Tanya Harding hired thugs to. <laughs> well, not to distract the conversation. I guess there's probably areas of that I would agree that with what the administration is doing, and areas where they're not. So I. I but then again, that, that to me is in the, the ballpark realm of serious discussion about what do you do about serious challenges that I think the administration is having more of those. I think where I'm much more, where I find much more problematic right now is the what we're seeing on, on the Hill, you know, and, and by the committee. So and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep it to that. And, and what you're worried about, what I'm worried about are, you know, this these these very McCarthy-like uh, throwbacks to the 1950s. And props to Fried Zakaria. I mean, he's he's trying his best. Uh, he actually wrote uh, in, in a Washington Post op-ed, to watch Tuesday's hearing of the new House Select Committee on China was to be transported back to the 1950s. And you made a reference to that. But I, I keep, I mean, maybe he is, he's not going to be our Edward R. Murrow, uh, although what he said was brave. I mean, when are the Army McCarthy hearings going to happen? I mean, who's going to say, you know, have you no decency, sir? Uh, Well, if I can, you know, maybe a slightly different framing for that is 
the reason I, I always hesitate to use McCarthyism is, you know, in the McCarthy era, there were actually Soviet spies at the highest levels of U.S. decision making. So McCarthy was a, a, a slandering drunk, but he was actually articulating, which we know with the, with, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Venona Papers, there were actually high level spies in the U.S. government. So I don't think we should actually even frame this as McCarthyism because there, there are not, so far as anyone has ever put out there, high level Chinese spies within the U.S. government. To me, this is more 1903 in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. This strikes me as all the hallmarks of anti-Semitism with shadowy cabals that have racial implications that are capable of sophisticated degrees of manipulation of all the levers of, of financial power. This were, that's, what, that's what struck me about the way that we're talking about this is you know, with the Soviet Union, there was a clear moral vision that the Soviet Union articulated that when people were spying for the Soviet Union was often because they were, you know, fellow travelers. Um, we don't have an, an Avril Harriman or others who, that we know of that have gotten, you know, to the top levels of policymaking. There's no sort of Cambridge Five, Cambridge Five here like we right. had in the UK. This is more the way that we talk about the anti-Semites talk about Jews. That's what really troubled me about a lot of the rhetoric here because. It's you're out of the bounds of reason because you're framing the Communist Party as sort of, well, I'll take Here's an example that bothered me when the, the protesters came into the hearing and General McMaster began speaking again. And I've got the exact comment here, so I don't say it incorrectly. Um, so without knowing who these people were, he immediately said, quote, I think these eruptions are indicative of the real of, of really the effect uh, that the United Front Work Department has had. So that the United Front Work Department is both real and both problematic. It is also now taken on a life where it is, and this is where the anti-Asian and anti-Chinese racism, xenophobia, and violence comes in. You can't prove you're not a member of the United Front, right? Right. right. And we're seeing what with Dominic Chen, Judy right Chu, now, and right. Judy Chu, where you know part of this is the challenge of, and again, I'm not. I know I know Dominic M from UC San Diego days. I have no knowledge one way or the other, but extraordinary accusations require clear, extraordinary proof. And right. if you read the letter that the the members, the Republicans gave to FBI Director Ray calling for an investigation of Dominic, there's not extraordinary clear evidence there. It's innuendo. And I think precisely because the United Front is a problem and precisely because we have a propensity and, and clear examples of rising anti-Asian racism and xenophobia, we need to be very careful and clear about how we talk about things like the United Front. And before we ever make an accusation, there needs to be very, very clear, serious proof. Um, so again, that's why the McCarthyism doesn't fit for me as much as as, as sort of all the hallmarks of anti-Semitism. Right, right, right. That makes sense. I, I'm still going to go on calling it McCarthyism because it just really does just feel like it an awful lot to me. And I am holding out for those Army McCarthy hearings. Um, you know, you talk about well the Dreyfus affair. We've got, we've got, we've got. You know, sure, this is it's more... just a little more obscure. It's hard for me <clears throat> okay, to. Okay, fair to, enough. I mean, people don't remember their European history classes. I mean, give the masses credit, Kaiser. You snob. <laughs> Look. You know, you talk about the need for more seriousness, and I think that part of the problem, part of the root of the problem that I would identify is that for so many Americans, China just simply isn't real. I mean, it's just something of the American imaginary, you know, whether Americans impute, like, good kind of fanciful qualities or bad ones. It's just this fantastic realm. Uh, it's about, you know, big numbers, whether those big numbers are, you know, uh, addressable markets or the teeming hordes of take, people taking our jobs or... Um, you know, the miles of high-speed rail. It's, you know, whatever. I, I mean, what I worry about the way things are going is that with less and less direct connection to China, I mean, look, we're going to have as much feel for China, for the reality of China, as we do right now for Iran, right? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? This, I mean, this is, this is something that I worry about constantly and I have, you know, fretted about for the last three years. Yeah, I, I think, um, as you say, one of the, abstracting China or the quote CCP in, in many ways leads to a dehumanization of the people who will suffer the downstream consequences of this on either side, by the way, both in the United States. And, um, and you know, if this is a new Cold War, you remember the amount of violence that occurred in proxy wars yeah, that led yeah. to the death and destruction of millions. So the Cold War is not a great playbook to rerun. <laughs> 
Um, so I agree, and I think one of the one of the you know one of the things that should be centered in this discussion is when we're thinking about China, thinking about the individuality and the dignity of the 1.4 billion people who live there, who who want are, are thinking about how do they you know provide a better life for their kids. And who have as every much of a right as every American does to prosperity, to freedom, to security. And so that doesn't mean kumbaya. It doesn't mean hard choices don't need to be made. And we don't we don't nor should we run foreign policy off of um, off of the idea that that we, we can't and never can inflict suffering. That's one of the tragic elements of of international politics. So I'm not saying, you know, you know, hold hands and, and let's, you know, it Woodstock. Um, but I do think it's imperative that those of us who are out in the public discussion constantly remind people about the ethical dimensions of, quote unquote, great power competition. And that, look, I, again, going back to the October 7th export controls, and I don't want to make it about that. I think there are choices like that that are uh, that sometimes will be had to make that are tough. But it's also important to remember that keeping China a generation behind on technology has functional impacts on the livelihoods of Chinese people, right. right? It means at the margin, your access to advanced healthcare, medical technology will be stunted, right? It right. means, you know, it, it, all of the downstream effects of technology, which are wonderful and, and oftentimes amazing, except in the case of chat GPT, but can often be <laughs> wonderful for, for improving livelihoods. You know, if you, you know, reading Scott Rosell's work about the challenges that China is facing in rural areas with human capital development, there are things technology can do to improve nutrition, you know, education. So when we say deny access to semi advanced semiconductors, I know what we're talking about is because we're worried that those semiconductors go into missiles, which will be targeted at Americans. I realize those are hard choices you sometimes need to make, but I think it's also important that we just make sure the app, our moral aperture is always open to the full effect of some of these choices and what they mean on people who have absolutely nothing to do with, you know, labor camps in Xinjiang or invasions of Taiwan. Well said, well said. Xinjiang, Taiwan, you, you mentioned COVID, obviously that was a, a major factor. Uh, you know, the Pelosi visit, there, there are all these things that we talked about earlier uh, that seem to be either converging or, or are constantly, we were constantly reminding ourselves of to whip us into this, this frenzy. One of the things that seems to have emerged recently, of course, is uh, China's position in the Ukraine war. Um, what do you think of this recent American strategy of publicizing intelligence or publicizing at least the claim to possess intelligence to try to warn Beijing away from certain behaviors uh, in two cases now? I mean, potentially, you know, providing war material to Russia ahead of uh, the, the meeting that was supposed to take place in, in, or it did end up taking place in Rome. There was one leak. And then, of course, just ahead of of Munich, there was this other leak. It wasn't a leak. It was I, a deliberate I, statement. Right? So, I, I mean, I listened to the great podcast you just did the other day on this. Um, I have a pretty cynical view of, of Beijing's relations with Moscow, or insofar as I find that I actually think there's there's a lot more there there in in Beijing's support and relationship for Moscow than many of us want to admit. And I think I, I wrote in a Washington Post piece a year ago that I actually think the worse the war got or the more prolonged it was, the more Beijing would consider at the margin ways to try to support the resolution of the war on Moscow's terms. So I, I think you know, buyer beware, we've heard these leaks before from the administration a year ago that did not pan out. Right. And you could see an element to where just, quote, publicly warning is a way to position China's relations with Europe or impose a cost on, on China without doing it without, because, you know, there's not much, China's kind of in a bit of a tricky position there. It can't, once you've been accused of something, it's hard to sort of walk back the accusation. That being said, I could see areas where China, in, a, in its own bounded way, that is trying to support Russia while, while doing so below a threshold, would consider things like provision of, of ammunition, for example, which is very hard to trace, which you could move through third countries, and um, would, would be um, within the bounds of, of China sort of having some plausible deniability, but trying to tip pip the war in the favor of Putin. I think the elemental math for me on China's relationship with Russia is, you know, this is, you know, the Putin and Xi relationship has gotten stronger than many could have expected. Uh, they've met 39 times now, vastly more than any other leadings with a foreign leader. And start from a very basic mathematics of, 
we have a 25 mile, 2,500 mile long border. It's, you know, as, as the Chinese say in their discourse, we now, because of our relationship, can be looking back to back out at the strategic landscape. Right. We don't have to think about our border. And, and we just translated a piece for our CSIS translation project by Feng Yu Jun, who's at Fudan University and one of the leading um, Chinese analysts of Russia. And his conclusion was over the last year that, that Chinese-Russian relations remain incredibly strong. Indeed, he called it one of the China's diplomatic, quote, bright spots. Huh. So um, I, I don't. I think you could make too much of this and say that this is a new axis of evil. I'm not saying that at all. It's a complicated relationship. There are deep divisions um, and fault lines. I don't think China wants the war. I don't think China wants to be dragged down by by Russia. But as we've seen with North Korea, you know, China should should in its own interest be a much better partner on North Korean issues. But its view is um, regime change would be the worst thing ever. Um, and so uh, I think we should bound our expectations for, for how much China will help us. And we saw that with its position paper on Ukraine um, last Friday. I mean, it was a re largely a recycling of its traditional talking points there. And you wouldn't know from reading it that Russia had invaded uh, Ukraine. So I'll, I'll stop my rant there. But I, <laughs> I, I could totally foresee that in limited ways, China would consider um, a low-level ways that it could support China on the battlefield, Russian battlefield. And final, final comment: I think some of the warning may have been not necessarily that Beijing is orchestrating this itself, but as you know, Beijing doesn't always know what its companies are doing. Right. This is why I'm always skeptical of the fact that you know Xi Jinping is in the mothership, like turning the dial on every Chinese firm, you know, and moving it around a map. One of China's challenges is Beijing just often doesn't un know what companies are doing in profit-maximizing ways out in the world. So you can imagine some you know defense contractor that is doing things with the Russians that that China doesn't know that Beijing doesn't know about. So I, I am not one for conspiracy theories, but when it comes to Russia's antics, I, I do make some exceptions, and I can imagine them looking at the U.S. and China like, you know, a married couple who are very much on the rocks, but still maybe like living together in the same house. So absolutely, the Russians hate the U.S. They want to hasten the breakup, right? So what does it want to do? It's going to leave China a note where, it, you know, where America will find it. It says, hey, last night was, was wonderful. Can't wait to see you again. Have you thought about what I asked you, you know, about maybe going away together? I mean, and it leaves these notes like, you know, where the U.S. is going to find them. I mean, if I can come up with that, surely some devious FSB officer can come up with that. I mean, I seriously think that it's it's entirely possible that this was uh, intel that came via Russia deliberately. It just it it it, it, it forces China into a, a difficult position, right? Uh, yes, I, we all have a different view of either what the conspiracy is or what Occam's razor is. You know, Occam's razor for me is. I'm sure we're probably picking this intelligence up on the Russian side, but that's because we have better access and able to hear. And we might be hearing Russian companies or cutouts in discussions with Chinese corporate actors talking about this. And so I, I just don't dismiss this as either a, you know, a, a psyop by the Russians uh, um, or, or, or just bluster by the administration. Um, I can completely see this occurring within the bounds of what I know and think about sort of Chinese calculations and strategic calculations. And the thing is, look, if Xi Jinping is rational, which he is, he's hearing the discourse in the United States. And his view is, yeah, I, I don't want to call it a Cold War because in the actual Cold War, the Soviet Union lost. But yeah, I'm thinking of this as some sort of rivalry because the United States is telling me it is. And that's my view of the world. And in that world, Russia, it's not the best partner in the world. But like we saw with Belarus, you know, like mm -hmm. China's Russia relationship with Belarus is stronger than I think it should be, given that the war is ongoing and Belarus is one of is one of Moscow's you know greatest supporters. Um, and yet Xi Jinping ch chose to meet with, you know, Lukashenko just the other day, uh, basically on the anniversary of the war. So right. they're, they're sending us signals. And, you know, Wang Yi was in Moscow meeting with Lavrov, and he met with Putin as well, right? Uh, basically on the anniversary of the war. And what's so confounding to me is, if you want to devise a symbolic trip to, to create tensions with the Europeans, go to Moscow on the one-year <laughs> anniversary and meet with Putin. Right, 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 right. It, does, it hardly supports the theory that China is now launching some sort of... Uh, charm offensive to try to prize the Europeans away and, and 
grant them genuine strategic I think they are. I think they're trying to do both. And I think what Beijing well, misses is... Well, not doing is, a very you, good job. Then. No, you, I think Beijing oftentimes has two conflicting objectives that it, it doesn't always understand um, the trade-off between them. You know, and I think this has been the case with the war in Ukraine. You know, I, who is, what does Evan call it? The Beijing straddle or yeah. something like that. You know, I, I'm not sure it's quite a straddle because one side has sunk, and that is its relationship with Europe. Uh, you know, its foot is in the mud uh, on, on that part, uh, deeper than it was more than a year ago. Um, but I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure Beijing understands how costly, um, uh, or, or how much its efforts, for example, just on the timing to meet with, meet with, uh, you know, Belarus and to meet with and to send Wang Yi to Moscow on the one-year anniversary. How that's going to land in European capitals? Right. I just I, go two weeks later. <laughs> so Jude, I'm not sure though that um, you know th- these things aren't of a piece. I see the warnings about you know the the, the, the publication of of the intelligence that we supposedly have about China pondering providing war material to Russia and the Energy Department coming out, you know, leaking this famously low confidence estimation uh, on the origins of of COVID as being sort of related. Uh, That, no, this is part, maybe I'm being paranoid here, but the same kind of it's open season on China thing. And then it was not surprising to me that Christopher Wray came out and talked about the FBI. I mean, he's probably still smarting from the whole, you know, China initiative debacle and hasn't really backed off from from the whole of society threat thing. Um, I, yeah, it just it feels I, like so. It just I, I would disagree insofar as our we're not that coordinated. Our government doesn't isn't coordinated that much. Right, right, right. Just to be honest, and these are separate tracks that these are operating off. Right. So, but, but uh, there's signaling still. There's still there's, there's sort of this. You know, you declare open season and you don't need to coordinate. Right. I, I well, I I don't want to take the I don't want to end the podcast on a sour note, Kaiser. I, <laughs> I guess I do not see this administration as an open season administration. You can disagree with their choices. You could think the the rhetoric is at a twelve when it should be at an eight, and and we could have that discussion. But I just think this is substantively and qualitatively different than the end of the Trump administration, where I completely agree that it was open season. I think in Congress, looking at the select committee, it's open season. I do not think the administration, yeah, yeah. State Department, NSC, DOD, again, I, I you know interact with these folks a lot. I think they're wrestling through hard challenges. We may come out in different places, but I, I think they're genuinely trying to wrestle with hard challenges. I, I agree with you. I think on the to me, the issue wasn't the Department of Energy coming out with this conclusion. It was the reporting on it, which missed the key point, which is low confidence. Right. And also the other headline was not all other IC entities agree. Right. Right. Um, and so. In fact, four I, of them I, simply don't. Right. The, the headline should be U.S. government not unanimous on, on origins of COVID. Right. That's what the headline is. It should and, be. Right. And those and those who who have come out with a conclusion, like Department of Energy, said low confidence. So part of this is just um, some of what's occurring is just enters into a media ecosystem that I think strips out some of the nuance, which is critical to understanding the the reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, don't worry, we're far from ending. And and one area where we certainly do agree uh, is. Look, I've, we've both lamented the way that the sort of simplistic Manichaean messaging that we hear from the Josh Hollies or from the Mike Gallagher's uh, is just a whole lot easier of a sell than what the the messy, heavily context-dependent, you know, caveat-laden version that people, you know, like us in Camp Reasonable are, are trying to persuade people of. Uh, what, what's your idea about how we can be more effective? Uh <laughs> I mean, because, you know, here, here's one thing that I, I, I wonder of the efficacy of this, because one of the things that we've taken to doing is doing that whole, you know, obligatory recitation of the whole litany of Chinese perfidy, right? We do that almost like reflexively now. And, you know, lots of people who are our friends have told me privately, they feel like they need to take a, a shower afterward. They feel, you know, like, God, I mean, that wasn't what I wanted to say, but we feel like we need to before the thing that we do want to say is taken seriously. But I worry that we're conceding too much, actually undermining everything that, that we say afterward. Uh, wh- how do you feel about that as an approach? 
I guess I don't have the same initial reaction on the first part of that. I, I don't see inherently uh, anything wrong about clarifying areas of Chinese behavior we see problematic. I guess I just think that gets you to the two-yard line, mm-hmm. right? I just don't think that's I, – I, I think we're beyond that in the conversation. I think I think that's all well socialized. I think the debate is – what do serious people want to do about it? One thing I would recommend is Mike Mazar, you know, who we talked about earlier at RAND, came out with a really, I think, impactful report on national competitiveness mm-hmm. that looked at all the hallmarks and elements. He did sort of historical case studies at who wins these sort of strategic competitions. And of course, as you and I would probably imagine, the systems that win it are resilient, are are dynamic, are liberal, are open. Sure. Um, and so part of this is, I, I think, getting a good story out there that is that is simple to understand. And I think we've talked more about the importance of strategic narrative insofar as complicated stories don't sell. And I don't mean that as a, you know, it is, it is hard to capture attention when so much is going on. And I think a, you know, existential struggle narrative is easier to grasp than the inverse of it, which is, well, it's complicated, right? Um, I, I mean, I've, I think about Mike's work as being actually a really good blueprint of focusing on what are the pillars of dynamism and resiliency for liberal systems that make us infinitely superior to, you know, authoritarian systems, both in terms of, you know, uh, brittleness, uh, innovation, and, and really sort of doubling down on those. And that was, if you look at George Kennan's long telegram, I mean, that was basically the last three paragraphs of it was focusing on domestic resiliency, making sure that as you, you, as you compete against rival systems, you don't simply mimic or, or exactly. Them. So, so this is, this is the point that I've been trying to push and I, that I've always thought was a good and simple one um, in response to, for example, all, all this, this worrying that we have about you know, the United Front Work Department hiding under our beds and trying to infiltrate us, and, and you know, we our strength is we're supposed to be an open society, and that confers on us a kind of immunity uh, to to this. It, it's it's sort of an immune system, if if not full immunity, at least you know, by sacrificing that, doing things like banning TikTok. How are we then any better? I mean, what what is it, it? It's it's like this loss of confidence that you know to bring bring us back to the beginning of our conversation about the select committee. What what I see on display is we're just sort of waving our lack of confidence in everyone's yeah, face. Yeah. I mean, it just and, it's I, and just I think like, that's well, a no, separate. To- so I think prima facie in of itself, I I you know my I definition of camp reasonable is not someone who agrees with me, but it's someone who can sit down and have a reasoned conversation, shows their math, you know, can can think about prioritization and, and think about scale. And and that's to me camp reasonable. It's not your 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 as hawkish or as dovish as I am. And you know, take an example, like on TikTok, I don't actually have a prepackaged answer on it. I just find, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm open to a world in which we decide that it's a problem. It, to me, it's just, as I think about the immediate challenges the United States front faces, like Confucius Institute issue, I was always thinking that was number 8,281 on my list of things to right. get to. And more troubling for me than the TikTok question is this one about um, land ownership uh, by, by Chinese citizens. Because right, that, to right, me, right. is so deeply... Un-American. Oh, so deeply un-American, and and also right, by right, the way, right, just right. diagnostically, if if China wants to spy on U.S. you know damage U.S. critical infrastructure or or spy on military installations, buying a piece of property next to them is probably not the way you're going to do it, right? There are probably simpler <laughs> ways. And again, I looked up the data. Balloons, Jude. Balloons. I looked up the, the data on this today. Um, so, Department of Agriculture in its most recent report on foreign ownership of U.S. land says that less than 1% of foreign-held uh, land is held by China, and, and, and foreign countries only account for 1.8% of U.S. land. So China owns 1% of 1.8% of the land in the United Chinese citizens or, or Chinese firms, right? So talk about a moral panic. Um, so there's just there's not a problem of scale, right? If you had a problem with scale, it would be Canada we would be worried about. But just Occam's razor, if if you're the Ministry of State Security and you want to get access to intelligence on a U.S. military base, what would be the way you would do it? 
register a purchase by a Chinese national in an adjacent piece of property and then what? Like launch your balloon from there? <laughs> or would you have would you try and infiltrate the base through, you know, a human asset, which is a lot cheaper? So that to me is both un American, this 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 blanket ban, right? But also just as ineffectual, right? It is a moral panic insofar as it is vastly the wrong response it's, the, it's right. both immoral and it's the wrong response so that bothers me more than the tiktok one because the tiktok one is sort of a technical issue that not all of us have a handle on this the land purchase is just prima facie i think un-american yeah 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 so as you say as you've been you know quick to point out china does present real challenges to the united states you're not somebody who takes this sort of maximalist version that you know we cannot uh Accept any tweaks to you know the American-led global order. Uh, anything that we change is is revisionism and and is totally unacceptable. Uh, American power and primacy has to be preserved at all costs in the world. So, what then, for you, are the priority issues? What what should we really be taking more seriously? So, number one, I think is is focusing on domestic resilience and not in a kind of yada, 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 or make it a, a socialist grab bag, but actually thinking about the foundations of, of uh, resiliency, thinking about the, the health of the body politic. Um, that doesn't have to come at the expense of, of, of other objectives, which I'll mention, a mo- mention in a moment out in the global arena. Um, but for me, just as a citizen, first and foremost, it's about the health of the republic and a place making sure that we our economy is resilient, thinking about upgrading and upskilling workforces to compete in these technologies of the 21st century. Again, Ryan Haas and I at Brookings have been doing a project on the role of human capital in US-China. Immigration. Yeah, yeah immigration. Absolutely. So uh, again, I think you can chew and it, uh, walk and chew gum at the same time, but I don't see um, I, I, I don't see much point in focusing all our attention on stopping invasions in Taiwan if we're not giving even more attention to the resiliency and health of the body politic here. Number two is I am not an, a relativist about what I want the orientation of the international order to look like. I want it to be tolerant, open, and liberal. But I don't think that always means that the United States has to be the hegemon. And I think indeed one of the ways that we should be thinking about international order is power is shifting not because necessarily China is rising, but other countries are rising, right? Southeast right. Asia, right? So like like all good quarterbacks, you know, throw the ball to the receiver. I think we are moving to a multipolar, multipolar world, and I think we should embrace that shift and, and do what we can to build democratic resiliency and, and participants and, and stakeholders in the liberal order rather than sort of planting our flag in 1995 and doing everything we can to sort of fix the world in a place where the U.S. leadership is is valuable because of U.S. leadership, I'm I'm comfortable in a world where Sweden is the is the global leader, so long as we're all moving towards a goal of a maximally participatory international order that is liberal, open, and is oriented towards solving functional, practical challenges that 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 we as a globe face in in the 21st century. So um, that's where, for the time being, I would like to see the United States playing a more active role in the international order, in multilateral institutions. I'm, I'm happy to have China participate in those, but I'm also happy to have us push back when we feel like China is participating in illiberal authoritarian ways. If China wants to be more of an AIIB player in the international order, bring it on, right? right. I, I welcome it. Um, where we see China as posing problems then I think we need to vocally and firmly push back and especially doing so in organic buyback from other stakeholders stakeholders in the international system. One final tweet. And specifically, so where, no, where let's, let's, let's drill down on that a little bit. So in what international organizations do you think China right now is playing a more nefarious role, is pushing an agenda that advances or that, that diminishes openness, tolerance, and... and uh, and liberalism. Well, w- w- one th- the challenge with this is this is also one where we're we're abdicating our role and or we have given up. But is the is the World Trade Organization, right? Right. So, it, it, you know, I, I always bow down to Mark Wu's China Inc. challenge of the WTO, which I think is just a phenomenal paper about about some irreconcilabilities of China's actual existing political economy and what what I would see is in the- what is a a a global good, which is a 
a framework and a, a multilateral institution for promoting global integration and trade. So um, I, there were problems of integration of China into the WTO. The challenge is the United States is also not a good faith actor in the WTO. So this is a twin right. version of um, the United States um, yet again being a leader for liberal international trade. Um, but not leading. But, well, not playing an actively hostile role, which it did throughout the Trump administration to to the WTO, right? So there there's an issue of where I'm not sure I want to live in a world where China is setting the rules of global trade because I think the unique components, the sui generis components of party state capitalism in China don't always mesh well with global trade rules. But the problem now sure. is I'm, it's, it's, it's as much that the United States has left the field on, on global trade that has made this problematic. And again, we're seeing discussions on CPTPP that are happening without, you know, happening without the United States because we have, you know, we have just decided that domestic politics is going to drive our, our, our position on global trade. And guess what? China's happy to step in there. Yeah, we have not returned to the field and, and we become, you know, in Evan Feigenbaum's memorable phrase, just a security provider in, in for example, in the Western Pacific. We're just the Hessians of Asia. <laughs> One final thing I was going to say is I, I in the discussion on, I, I know many people don't want to have the discussion of wh where does this all end in our, you know, if this is a competition, what does the finish line look like? Um, I have struck. I I kind of understand not wanting to firmly narrow down exactly what the finish line looks like, but I think increasingly it's becoming critical that we do articulate some version of coexistence with China that, on our mm -hmm. part, and and has a a clear defined view of where we see China integrating. And I think that's one area where I do think Beijing is right to say, well, what is it, America? I don't think we've articulated a clear vision of what is the permissible play space for Beijing in the international uh, uh, arena. And I think the end goal of our U.S. policy has to always have a core component of coexistence. There is no alternative. Right. You, you cannot, you know, there are biological realities to the world and economic realities that make us inter, I, intertwined with China. There, there is no ignoring that. You can't put China in a corner. Um, and th this is why the language of existential threat is simply unacceptable that, in our rhetoric. It, impractical and, and unacceptable on, on, on yeah. both. Um, and because, of course, if it is an existential struggle, you, you know how those end? With defeat yeah. of one or the other side, right? right. And, and I don't right. know what that looks like outside of World War III, which to me is unacceptable. So I think a part of the maturity in the discussion in the U.S. is, yes, forceful pushback. Um, and I, I recommend a a piece by Mike Green, my former boss in foreign affairs recently called The Real China Hands, where at the end of it, he said, yeah, pushback against China is early innings, but the end of the match is finding a durable coexistence with China, right? That's the real long That's right. game. Uh, absolutely. Hallelujah. And I, I completely agree with that. Jude, what a pleasure it is talking to you. It's always, I mean, I, it's great to see you so riled up. It's it's uh, makes for a fun conversation. Uh, let's move on to recommendations. First, a really quick reminder that if you like the work that we do here uh, with the Seneca Podcast or with the other shows in the network, the best way that you can support us is to become an Access subscriber. Uh, for it's a buck a month right now for you know for the first month anyway. Uh, after that, you know we get you. But uh, you know, sign up, check it out. You'll you'll love the newsletters. You will absolutely love getting Seneca early on Monday. Go to thechinaproject.com slash subscribe and check out China Access. One month trial for one dollar. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Jude, what do you have for us? Uh, this is something that I'd recommended to you um, over a text message a few months ago, but it's a an audible, um, it's an audible sort of, I guess, audio book or audio production. It's called mm -hmm. uh, Miracle and Wonder Conversations with Paul Simon. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a five or six hour um, uh, uh, kind of conversation storybook uh, co-hosted by Malcolm Gladwell and Bruce Hed Hedlum, which in long interviews with Paul Simon interspersed with clips from songs and, and other interviews from, from other artists um, is just an exploration of Paul Simon's um, sort of songwriting lineage, but I think more importantly, the craft of songwriting. And I just, I, I love Paul Simon and uh, Graceland was was in remains one of my sort of Desert Island disc favorite albums. But I think even if you're not a if you're not a Paul Simon fan and you just appreciate artistic craft, 
Um, I think this is so well done. I found it so captivating. Um, and just the, it really got my sort of creative juices uh, firing. So uh, highly recommended. All right. Fantastic recommendation. Yeah, I, I love Ryman Simon. I, I listen to a lot of Simon and Garfunkel still. And uh, just because I've been kind of fixated with their vocal harmonies and how uh, difficult and, oh my God, they're just amazing. I want to recommend something a little closer to home. It's an interview with Angela Rasmussen, the virologist who's really been out there among the bravest and most consistent voices arguing, you know, the the case for zoonotic origins against the uh, unkillable and still, you know, as we've said, poorly supported lab leak theory. Uh, She is not an apologist for China uh, in this interview that she does. The one that I want to recommend is with Slate, uh, the the What Next TBD podcast with Lizzie O'Leary. She is very candid about, you know, what China did and didn't do with the Huanan market in Wuhan. Uh, it's it's very sad that so few virologists are willing to stick their heads above the parapet these days. Uh, but I don't blame them because, you know, you just get so viciously attacked out there. Who wants that? I mean, who needs that? I, I certainly don't. Anyway, give it a listen. It's it's uh, really good sense making on the uh, the whole debate. So, Jude, man, thanks thanks once again. That was just uh, a lot of fun. Thank you. Real, real, real great to be here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, don't forget to check out Jude's excellent podcast, Peakingology. I was just listening to your latest one with Kelly Tsai. She's terrific. All right. Uh, stick around for just one second here, Jude, while I read the outro. Sounds good. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at The China Proj, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey.